Morning Church, my name is Caroline and I'm going to bring you the reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or your devices or the words will be up on the screen as well. So I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 29. So Mark chapter 6 starting at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no money in your belt, no bag, sorry, no, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, who, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. 
At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God. Well, thank you, Caroline. And if you've got your Bible, I'd, I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you or, or the device, Mark chapter 6. And there's a title for you, So What Did You Expect? So what did you expect? So what did you expect when you got married? What did you expect when you went to go and see your favorite sporting team play or go and see your favorite pop artist perform? So what did you expect when you met your biological parent for the very first time? So what did you expect on your first day of school? So what did you expect on your first day of uni? What did you expect the very first day of your new job? Does the experience always meet the expectation? Yes or no? Does the experience always meet the expectation? The answer is often no. How many times have you said to yourself, wow, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to be spoken to like that. I wasn't expecting that kind of end to the movie. I wasn't expecting to be abused. I wasn't expecting to get fired. I wasn't expecting that kind of sermon. You can very often have a disappointing experience compared to a heightened, what? Expectation. But sometimes the experience does meet the expectation, doesn't it? Or even maybe it's a greater experience to the expectation. That meal was so much better than I expected. That game, that movie, that sermon was so much better than I expected. That visit with that person after so long was so much better than I expected. So what did you expect when you became a Christian? When I became a Christian... I expected that God would take away all my personal issues, all my hang-ups, all my insecurities, all my fears, all my anxieties. That's what I expected. Well, God did some of that and left others, some of which I'm still fighting after 32 years as a Christian. I certainly expected my marriage to be far far easier than it's turned out to be. I really expected Christian, uh, being a Christian parent to be rather cruisy. I expected my kids to grow up and be Christians and be in this Christian tunnel without too many holes in it. I thought 
that when I became a pastor, I would set the world on fire. And I never expected the inside of the church to be more difficult than the outside. When I gave my life to Jesus and went home after that church service and told my mom I was a Christian, I expected everyone that I spoke to from that moment onward to instantly repent and believe and become a Christian. I only had two friends at the time. They were two drinking buddies. I told them I was a Christian. I thought they would understand me, accept me, and I thought they'd become Christians. The moment I told them that I was a Christian, they never spoke to me again. In the early days of being a Christian, I would go out with the evangelism team. We'd go into people's homes, usually the visitors that, have, that, that would come and visit the church. Sometimes it was cold turkey and knocking on doors. And quite frankly, when we got into a home, I expected every single person after we presented the gospel to be on their knees repenting and believing in Jesus. I was devastated when many refused. I mean, how does anyone refuse to respond and believe the good news that Jesus Christ was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions? I mean, you'd have to be insane to reject that, wouldn't you? I mean, what drowning person refuses to be rescued? What person dying of thirst refuses water? What person knowing that Jesus Christ has extinguished the fires of hell by his blood would say, well, I would rather go to hell? I mean, how insane do you have to be? You see, what I expected when sharing the gospel and what happened in reality were two very different things. Mark, the gospel writer, is a real blockhead. And he's put three stories together in what I'm calling a Mark and hamburger. Don't start getting hungry. And Mark has arranged this passage in such a way so that you and I will be absolutely under no false expectation of what's going to happen when you share the gospel with people. The Wagyu patty there is in the middle. That's the, that's the middle bit. Mark 6, 6b to 13, and we'll come to the heading, the rejection of repentance. That's the, that's the patty. That's the middle. And when we understand that middle piece, we'll understand Mark 6, 1 to 6, and we'll understand Mark 6, 14 to 29 at the bottom. You see it? That's the Markan theological mouth-watering hamburger, and we're going to take the whole lot this morning. It's going to be one big bite. And if anyone wants to shout me for Maccas afterwards, I prefer Hungry Jacks, okay? Here we go. There's the burger. Let's start. Right. The rejection of repentance. The rejection of repentance. So if you have a look at verse 6b, it tells us there that Jesus went around teaching from village to village. He calls the 12 to himself, and then he begins to send them out two by two. He gives them authority, to, uh, authority over impure spirits. Now, you might just stop there for a moment and say, well, why does Jesus call 12 to himself? Why does he call 12 Jews to himself? Why does he call 12 Jewish men to himself? They symbolically represent the tribes of Israel. It's not a gender thing. It's an Israel genealogical thing. 
He sends them out two by two. Why? Is this a buddy system? Is this a companionship thing? Are they meant to sort of encourage each other because it's gonna, the task is going to get hard? There, there might be a slither of truth in each of those, but if we're going to understand two by two, you've got to go back into the Old Testament and you pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. In the Old Testament, Moses said, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. You see, the disciples were, were sent out, commissioned to go out with a life and death message, and the two witnesses are the biblical verification to that message. In other words, one Joe Blog disciple on his own talking to Jews didn't carry much weight. Two by two was lending weight, a biblical weight, to the life and the death message that they were carrying. Just pause here for a moment. Do you, do you, brothers and sisters, do we really understand that having been called to Jesus, Jesus has taken us from death unto life. And we are commissioned to go out and share a message that is life from death. But as Jesus sends, out, sends them out two by two, did you notice that, that, that he gave them some remarkable instructions? He told them what to take, what not to take. Did you pick that up? So you notice there, verse 8, verse 9, these were the instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, but take your belt, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. So the things they were to take was a staff, a cloak, a shirt, a belt, sandals. Now this is not a prescription of how you are to look when you go out and become a disciple maker. You've got to go back into the Old Testament to find the link. The link is here. The link is in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. And listen for those items. This is how you are to eat. Remember the Passover. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and the staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the night that God killed every firstborn in Egypt... The Israelites ate the Passover, and they needed to be ready to leave as soon as the angel of death came in. So here's the link. The disciples were being sent out in Exodus style. Or maybe I should say they were being sent out in, in, in Exodus style where they were saying the new Exodus is taking place. Or should I say the true Exodus is taking place. Not a slavery, not a freedom of slavery from Egypt, not a freedom of slavery from Rome, but a freedom of slavery from sin. You see it? Mark is linking us to the Old Testament because they were going out with the message that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. And Jesus is the new Moses that comes to lead people out of the misery and shame of sin's bondage. Why no bread? Why no bag? Why no money? It's not a call for you to go out and say, well, God will just provide and somehow it's going to fall from the sky. Can't be that, can it? Because he was t they were told that there would be homes that would be open and provide for them. No bag, no money. 
No, bread meant that they needed to be ready. They needed to be focused. And they needed to be urgent in their task. Calling people now. Now. Today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's now. Because the Lamb of God has been slain for the sin of the world and His blood has been smeared on the doorposts of the cross. Today is the day of salvation. And taking the message to people who do not know Christ is more important and more urgent than the daily necessity of bread and handbags and wallets. Now just stop here for a moment and I want you to think about something. As Jesus commissioned His disciples to go out, what do you think their expectation was of the kind of reception that they would receive? Do you think their expectation was a good reception or a bad one? What do you think? I think they would have expected a very good reception. They would have expected the Jews to receive the Messiah they've been waiting for. They would have expected that Jews would have just flung open their arms, flung open the doors of their homes, welcome in. Yes, of course. I mean, for goodness sake, what Jew is going to refuse the Messiah who can calm the wind and the waves with his voice? What Jew is going to uh, is refuse the Messiah who can cast out a legion of demons and even cast them into pigs? Mark chapter 5. What Jew is going to refuse a Messiah that can heal a woman hemorrhaging if she, barely, she merely touches him? What Jew is going to refuse a Messiah who can raise a Jewish leader's daughter from the dead? End of Mark 5. But Jesus now sets up something of a sobering, shocking experience that the disciples are to expect when they evangelize Jews. Do you see it in verse 11? And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust of your, of your feet as a testimony against them. This is like an unexpected Gentile Hamas missile landing in the promised land. Here's how the, the, the dust shaking worked. When a Jew went from the promised land and went into Gentile territory or Samaritan territory, it's a little bit like going from Busselton to Union Perth. It's a little bit like that. When they go off there, they go to Gentile country. When they come back, there's sort of a border. And when they got to the border to come back into the promised land, they would shake the dust off their feet. It was Gentile dust. And the why they shook the, the dust off of their feet, it was a way of expressing that the Gentiles were a little bit distasteful. The Gentiles were not part of the promised people of God, and the Gentiles were not part of the kingdom of God. Now remember at this point, Jesus is sending His disciples to whom? To Jews. Do you hear the shock? He's saying to them, if, you reject, if they reject you, if the Jews reject you, shake off the, the Jewish dust off your sandals. 
Jesus says, not only are the Jews going to reject you and therefore reject me, you shake, when they do that, you shake off the dust off your feet as a sign to them that they are no different to the unbelieving Gentiles who are under the judgment of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that Jews who do not believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, they are not saved. They do not become to believe in Jesus. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. By shaking off Jewish dust if they reject you, what you're saying, you are not children of Abraham. You're actually children of the devil. I wonder if you've ever heard of something called two-covenant theology. Two-covenant theology, sometimes it goes under the name of dual-covenant theology, and it goes something like this. It says God's covenant with Israel is irrevocable and permanent. Since this covenant is still valid, it's also salvic for them. It's not necessary that Jews believe in Jesus. The evangelization of Jews is unnecessary and is better avoided. This is actually a very strong belief in some very pro-Israel Christian circles that says something like this, because the Jews are God's chosen nation, they don't necessarily need to be evangelized in order to put their faith in Christ. But you see what Jesus is saying? Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or something in between, if you reject me, you are not a child of God. But this rejection, this rejection by Jews and Gentiles will not be a shock if we actually understand verse 12 and what the disciples were told to go and preach. Did you see it? Verse 12. They went out and preached that people should, what? Repent. All expectation that people are going to love you, love your message, welcome your Jesus, all that expectation goes straight out of the window when you understand that you're calling people to do what? Repent. You see, repent means, literally, it means to turn around. It means to go in a different direction. It means to stop thinking wrongly. Stop thinking that there is something you can do in order to be saved. Stop thinking there's some sort of credential you've got that will give you merit before a holy God. Stop thinking wrongly, think rightly that the only person that can save you is Jesus himself by what he did at the cross. Do you understand how shocking this would be to Jews? Jews prided themselves on being Jewish. They prided themselves on being the nation of God. Children, physical children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They prided themselves on, on, on working hard to keep the laws of God. Their leaders were so pious, they made up laws in order to help them keep the laws they already had. Repent. Stop thinking there is some religious or earthly credential achievement that you can have before a holy God. There is no merit before a holy God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
You get this? He says to his disciples, when you, when you tell Jews to repent, you're saying to them, they are just as spiritually sick and sinful as Gentiles. And you know what's going to happen? So many of them are going to shut the door in your face. They ain't going to let you in. Folks, the message hasn't changed. It hasn't changed for Jews and it hasn't changed for Gentiles. Mark 1.15 The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Stop thinking wrongly and believe the gospel. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 20.21, this is in the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repent. The King of glory has come. The King of glory has humbled himself to take on the form of man, take on the form of a servant, to become even obedient to death on a cross, to save us from the slavery of sin and death and hell. Repent. Believe the good news. Stop believing the wrong news. Stop believing that there is no God who won't judge you. Stop believing that you can have eternal life, everlasting life, by picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop thinking that you're good enough to be saved. See, Jesus didn't come for those who thought they were healthy, did he? He came for those who knew they were. They were sick. Jesus did not come for those who thought they were self-righteous, but those who knew they were unrighteous. So when you go out with the message of repentance, what should you expect? What sort of experience should you expect? Rejection. People will reject repentance. And do you know why the Jew rejects repentance? Do you know why the Gentile rejects, rejects repentance? Do you know why? Because people love the darkness. They love their sin. They love their freedom to do what they want to do the way they think they should do it. Now, in order to further press this home and illustrate it, Back to our hamburger. Mark puts two live living illustrations, one at the top and one at the bottom, to illustrate the rejection of repentance. We could put it like this. We should expect the rejection of repentance because what happened to Jesus? They rejected the Redeemer. 
So up to Mark 6, you'll notice verse 1, Jesus comes home, returns to Nazareth. Verse 2 is his custom. He goes into the synagogue. He begins to teach. Jesus was known as a rabbi. He was part of hometown. Rabbi, whatever, he gets an invitation. He teaches, and he begins to teach. And, and you'll notice in verse 2 and 3, I mean, Jesus is teaching in an amazing way. Wow. It's sort of, you know, I don't know, just, just extraordinary authority. And, and, he's, and he's been doing miracles, of, of, of course. But how do they respond in verse 3? Look at the end. And they? They took offense. Let me ask you folks. Why did they take offense at Jesus? They took offense because he was teaching them that he was the new Moses that had come to break the yoke, not the yoke of the Roman slavery, but the yoke of sin slavery. Jesus was teaching the Jews that they were prisoners of sin in their own jailhouse. He was teaching them they were blind to their own sinful natures, but that he was the one who would come and set them free. He'd set the captives free. He was the Paschal Lamb who would be slain for their sin of the cross. And they took offense at him. They despised him, just like the prophet Isaiah said they would. Look at verse 3. Do you see how ugly this gets? You pick the ugliness? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters with us? In a Jewish culture, you are never referred to as the son of your mother. You're always referred to as the son of your, your father. Hometowns have a long memory. Hometown knew. They knew that Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary were married. They knew that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Jesus was illegitimate. Isn't this Mary's illegitimate son? You know the B word for that one, don't you? And he's telling us he's the Redeemer? He's telling us we're sinful. He's telling us we've got no merit as Jews. I mean, no wonder they blew a Jewish gasket. So folks, when you go out with the message of repentance, even though you're holding the greatest message in all of life, why should you expect an experience of rejection? Why? Because they rejected your Redeemer. <laughs> if they rejected Him, they're going to reject you, right? Heck! I mean, Jesus Himself put it this way. He said, remember I told you, John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will. You're going to get the same. You with me? Let's finish the hamburger. We've got the rejection of repentance illustrated in the rejection of the Redeemer. And now we've got, just because I love alliteration, we've got the rejection of righteousness. I couldn't fit John's name into an R, so that's where we went. But the hamburger makes sense, doesn't it? Expect rejection for repentance. Why? 
Because they rejected your Redeemer and they also rejected who? John. What did, what did John do? He called Herod to repentance. What actually happened to John? Quite frankly and bluntly, they murdered him. Herod takes his brother's wife, Herodias. She, in history, actually happened to be his niece. Don't go there. John calls Herod and obviously Herodias to repentance. Repentance is acknowledging that sin is sin. Repentance is acknowledging that sin is lawlessness. Sin is acknowledging that sin is breaking God's law. Repenting is also acknowledging that there is complete forgiveness for all your sin, no matter what you've done, even if you've taken your brother's wife. I mean, you get this. John calling Herod to repentance is like one of us going to Vladimir Putin and telling him to repent. How scary is that? Now, I want to say something that you've got to hear. When you know people's exact sins. When you know the detail of people's sins precisely, they become the hooks on which you hang the gospel. Does that make sense? You see, because when you're confronting and pushing into a person's sin, it's then that they can actually see it, hopefully, and then it's when you bring the what? You bring the gospel. Let me give you an illustration. You know that Christian preachers that go into prisons, they don't talk in generalities, do they? When you're standing, and I've done this, when you're standing in front of prisoners that are rapists and arsonists and murderers and assaultists and everything else under the sun, you stand there and you call out their sin, don't you? That's the hook and you hang the gospel straight on top of that. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Do you remember when in Mark 10, we'll get to it eventually, you remember when the, the rich guy came to Jesus and said, what must I do to, to gain eternal life? What sin did Jesus point out? His love of money, that he coveted money. You know that Jesus went to have dinner with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. You know, little Zacchaeus comes out the tree, they go for dinner. What do you think Jesus and Zacchaeus spoke about at dinner? <laughs> Zacchaeus, you're a great guy, right? You're a pyramid scheme thief. And what did Zacchaeus do afterwards? He did repent. You remember Jesus? He called the Pharisees hypocrites because of their greed. And in the human realm, it cost, them, cost Jesus his life. John calls out Herod for his lust and abuse of power to take something that does not belong to him. And in the human realm of things, it cost John his life. Now, brothers and sisters, it's not done in a, this, this calling out and I call it looking for these sinful hooks, if you like. It's not done in an arrogant, brash manner. It's done with tenderness of heart and tears and humility because you see what's happening is you're going as one forgiven sinner to an unforgiven sinner and you're pointing out their sin and you're hoping, praying, longing that that unforgiven sinner becomes a forgiven sinner. I mean, do you remember that Jesus wept? He wept over Jerusalem. He wept because they would not repent, because they would not turn to him and come to him. 
Now, it's highly unlikely in Australia that you're going to get murdered for calling people to repent and believe the good news. But I will tell you this, that the rejection that you will experience may feel like death. See, when you're rejected, marginalized, insulted, called all sorts of names, demoted, not promoted, excluded, called a bigot, intolerant, anti-Semitic, out of touch, judgmental, The point of Mark's hamburger is really wrapped up in this. In the words of Peter 1, Peter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, dear brothers, dear sisters, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejection should not be strange. It should be the thing that we expect. John put it like this in 1 John 3.13. He said, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. You got the burger? There's one more. Can you see it at the top there? There's the rejection of repentance. To be expected because they rejected the Redeemer and they rejected John, a preacher of righteousness. But I don't want you to leave here too demoralized or too discouraged because there is a rejoicing in repentance. I could stand here all day and share with you my heartache of all the experiences that I've had of people who have rejected the gospel and rejected the message of repentance. It is heart-breaking. It is soul-destroying. Especially when it's the people that are closest to you, the people you've given birth to. When it's your mother, But it's not the end of the story, is it? Have a look at this. <laughs> now remember the context here, Luke 15, this is so beautiful, isn't it? Luke 15, the context of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son comes next. Let's not go there. I tell you in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What does that verse tell you? Two things it tells you. One, there will be some who respond. Whether immediately or later, there will be a repenting. And who rejoices when that happens? The angels. Well, in the verse, it's the angels. Heck, have you ever thought about it this way, that actually in heaven, the day that you repented, the angels threw a party? And they've invited you to it. It's coming. Don't worry. Luke 15, 10, in the same way, this is after the, 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 the lost coin, in the same way I tell you there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Maybe the best way I'm going to put this to you is to share a story with you. And then I'll close. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies which was owned by an atheist British man. And on this island he had two to 3,000 slaves. And here's what the owner, this British atheist owner said. He said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to us about God. I am through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic and there to live and die without ever hearing about Christ. Several thousand black slaves toiled in the sugarcane fields under the burning sun. 3,000 slaves doomed to live and die without ever hearing about Christ. Two young Germans in their 20s from the Moravian sect heard about their plight. They were willing to sell themselves to the British planter for the standard price of a male slave. They sold themselves into slavery for the sake of reaching the slaves. The Moravian community from Heronhut, they came to see the two lads off. They knew they would never return again, having freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery. As a member of the slave community, they would witness as Christians to the love of God. On that shore that day, family members were gathered, church members were gathered. There was emotions and weeping and wailing. Questions, was there extreme sacrifice? Wise, was it necessary? But as the ship sailed away, as it slipped away with the tide and the gap widened, the two young men linked arms. They raised their hands. And they shouted across the gap, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I will tell you this from personal experience. The experience of rejoicing of those who do repent outstrips, outweighs any time, any day, the experience of the rejection.